Hello, fellow Hebrews and all fellow travelers. This is Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And the ever-shrinking Liel Leibowitz. Chag Brexit Sameach. Too soon. Our, did, no, did the, exactly on Has time. the vote happened yet? Thursday. Thursday. So I'm... As you'll be hearing this. I am pro-Brexit. As am I. Man. All right, we'll talk about that. Our Jewish guest this week is Matthew Futterman, author of the book Players, the story of sports and money and the visionaries who fought to create a revolution. It's about big money in sports. And our Gentile of the week is former book editor and passionate student of the Latin language, Anne Patty. And our masturbator of the week. <laughs> and our masturbator of the week is Ari Nagel, of whom we spoke last week, uh, the guy who leaves his semen in Target restrooms for women who want to self-inseminate uh, to become single mothers. Father of 22. <laughs> Father scour of, Father of the year, people. Maybe. Yeah. So since we last talked about his his sitch, his situation, it, the news has broken that he's <laughs> a married man. His wife claims not to have known about his extracurricular big box store activities. She's <laughs> not happy. She's not I pleased. mean, which he's one of us? Wait, wait, wait. Which one of us has not had the, oh, Honey, I masturbated and sired 22 children in the Target bathroom conversation. But Come three on are yours. But three, yeah. right, right, right. Well, that's, that brings him up to 25. The 22 did not count his three in wedlock children. But um, we have him on. The, I don't know that anyone else has invited him on their Jewish podcast. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> Only we have I that I wonder honor. why that is. That and he's actually honor. going to be on the line with us. In fact, he offered to come into the studio. He couldn't He couldn't get on Unorthodox fast enough when I asked him. He's like, but do you guys have a bathroom nearby? <laughs> yeah. Uh, before we move on to a little news of the Jews, let's just um, let's do a life check. Stephanie. Uh, hey, happy Father's Day, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, ben Cohen is back, right, <laughs> yes, Stephanie? Ben Cohen is back. He's been covering the The, the NBA finals are so over. So Steph Curry is now the other Steph. Yeah, finally. I'm yeah. the main Steph. You're and, the main Steph. Steph Curry deserves to be the other Steph. Yeah, and you're a, you're a more successful Steph. I'm better at the, right. the things I'm supposed to be doing. You and Steph Curry have won the same number of NBA championships <laughs> this, this year. year. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and Liel, how's the training for the marathon going? Uh, it is going arduously and miserably as well it should. And have you? Is there any other way? Have you have you signed up yet? You've paid your. I've paid my dues. You are definitely I, right. I, will, I, will, I, I may die, but. Um, so perhaps a little news of the Jews. El Al recently announced that it will quote heavily subsidize the costs of shipping a rare breed of sheep allegedly descended from Jacob's flock of sheep referenced in the Bible. Uh, the sheep have to be shipped from a major North American airport to Israel. The owners of the sheep, Gil and Jenna Lewinsky of British Columbia, uh, believe that their sheep are descended uh, from sheep described in the book of Genesis. They believe this because these are the only animals in the world, so they claim, to have speckled skin, spots on their wool, and bands on their ankles and knees, which apparently is part of the description in Genesis that I totally missed last time we went through that, Parsha. Uh, they have a crowdfunding campaign launched by the Lewinsky's called Friends of the Jacob Sheep. <laughs> and they believe that when the sheep return to Israel, it will fulfill a biblical prophecy. And that, peace will descend on the land. <laughs> like, we don't, we, we basically don't, we never needed the Oslo Accords. We just needed these sheep. They cite the Rav Amram Vaknin, a mystic living in southern Israel, who says he can predict the future. And as of this past Monday, they had raised, how much do you think their crowdfunding campaign had raised? $14. Oh no no no! Yo, you cynic! It had raised it had raised basically uh, the same amount Donald Trump raised yesterday four hundred seventy dollars. <laughs> An auspicious four hundred seventy dollars. Okay, so this is basically like birthright, but for sheep. <laughs> <laughs> like you have to like be, you the have sheep. to have those ankle straps, those ankle bands. So the, the, you, actually, you're right. The, the purpose is for have... the sheep to get laid, right? 
That is literally why they're doing that. If the sheep get married, they get a free honeymoon? No, here's the thing. There's a biblical sheep, right? And they're taking an al flight. So do they behave like Haredis on the al flight? So they're like, I don't want to sit next to a female (laughs) sheep. And then they have to move them around. They say, I don't want to sit next to you. (laughs) Well played, you. It's also like El Al's like a modern day like Noah's Ark. They they take two of them (laughs) on one flight. It's like, what What is happening? Can I say, that's actually a great... I hope they put them in the main cabin. That would actually make an al flight feel better and not worse. <laughs> you actually totally have to sense. jockey for your luggage, like with the sheep there. Also, like, uh, excuse me. I feel like for this, they're going to be get. It's going to be like the massage sheep at some point. Like they're going to be like agents, the way all yes, animals get. The, yes, get, absolutely. Yes, they will join to, the dolphin. It's <laughs> going to be one of the animals that Arab conspiracy theorists think Israel uh, has trained. Agent, <laughs> agent Fluffy, listen to me. The wool is actually, now time. It's like what they say in yeah, Mean Girls, but his what, hair is full of secrets. What, <laughs> what would the operation be called? Operation Wool Light? <laughs> operation, <laughs> operation No Shotness? Operation Counting Sheep. In, oh, wow. In, you guys, I, I don't have the punning gene. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that my my extraordinary wit never comprises? It's puns? literally all I have. Not it's, even once. It's yeah. and, and I'm aging into that point as a dad where I should have you, like yeah, that's, your dad jokes need to be like that's supposed to be ready. what humor is when you're a dad, and yet I I don't I don't have it. So I'm gonna have to continue to rely on silly underwear. The trailer is out for Denial, the movie in which Rachel Weisz plays Holocaust historian Deborah Lipstadt, who is sued by Holocaust denier David Irving in the famous case from about 10 years ago. Um, This is remarkable, not only because I hope the movie is going to be awesome and because that's a very, very important free speech case. By the way, that is an Oppenheimer date movie, is it not? (laughs) It it takes a lot to get Sid out to a movie because she gets tired early in in, in the day. Um, Thank you. I like her style. I like it too. Here's my thing about Rachel Weisz playing Deborah Lipstadt. Now, Deborah Lipstadt is a beloved tablet contributor. Yeah, and she's I've ta- the best. I've, she's a great writer, and I've talked to Deborah. And I'm I'm going to say that Deborah is she is a handsome woman. Like Deborah is no slouch in the looks department. But let's be honest here. Just as I am no Daniel Craig, uh, Deborah is prob- would probably be the first to say she's no Rachel Weisz. I mean, I think Rachel Weisz is one of the great Hollywood beauties. But it does raise the age-old question, who would play us in the movie of our life? And, you know, I've actually – I know who that is because everyone now tells me I look like Daniel Radcliffe, as we've discussed. I think I look more like Mark Duplass. <laughs> I always forget which one that is. Don't you watch The League? Anyway, <laughs> Liel, who would play you? When they, make, when they make the movie of Unorthodox, who would play you? Whoopi Goldberg? No, no, no. Margaret Cho? For realsies. Um, Vincent D'Onofrio. Who dat? Yeah, oh, yeah, from Law and Order I'm, I'm, I'm from CSI. Man. Oh, I know who a that large is. man who, who he was looks, in one of the Men in Black movies. Yes, he he's was. very stern, he but has, loving, he but caring. A, he has a lot of jaw. Is <laughs> the is the premiere <laughs> feature here? And who would play like Lisa? Oh, someone crazy hot, uh, Anne Hathaway. Oh, I like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I anyone for your parents? Way more attractive. Anyone for my parents? <laughs> um, I like that they're in the unorthodox movie. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Why, why they feature not? prominently. Uh, totally. Carl Reiner and uh, <laughs> what do I know? Jerry Stiller and <laughs> Jerry Stiller and Mira. Yeah. Just cast them both. That would be perfect. Doesn't matter that she's dead, isn't she? Didn't Anne Mira? She just died. Anne Mira died. We love you, Anne Mira. Stephanie? Okay, so you're not going to find a Jewish gal who would like be mad if Natalie Portman played them in a movie. Okay, fair enough. Right? No, but I'm going to no. I'm going I'm to be different. Yeah. Since it has to be like the young it's like the younger ver- you know, the younger version of me. I'm going with Haley Steinfeld. Nice. Of True Grit fame. Yes. Isn't she Great. six foot one or something? That she Who always looks so she's, tall. She's Mark. in Pitch Perfect. She's Why? the best. And there'd be like a singing component too, even though I can't sing. And who plays like, Ben Cohen? 
Oh, that is a good question. Someone told him he looked like BJ Novak, and I was like, BJ Novak. I was like, was you literally are just saying he's like a skinny Jewish guy. I'm revising my thing. I, like, I, you're being I want, racist. I want The Rock to play me. <laughs> I think that's. Not, I like the. I yeah. like the the Dwayne Johnson the race blind casting there. Yeah, yeah. Why not? It's sure. 2016. Why not? Um, speaking of of macho uh, people of indeterminate ethnicity, Ken Livingston, London's <laughs> former mayor. <laughs> A man known for his affection for Hamas and his um, not cozy relationship to the Jewish people now says that he may in fact be Jewish because he, I guess he thought about this and he said, oh, my mother's name is Zona, which of course is, is Hebrew. It just so happens, though he doesn't seem to know this, that it's Hebrew for prostitute. It, Liel, is it prostitute or is it like whore? Whore. 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 Is there a- well, if you went through Bible class at third grade and giggled hysterically – as your teacher said, no, it doesn't mean prostitute. It means a woman selling food. You're like, yeah, all right. That's why we call each other's mothers that. Right, because like Benzona is like. Benzona means. Benzona means. Son of a whore. Son of a whore. And, it, and that's a big one in Israel, right? Like that's a huge. Everyone one. and their brother is a son of a whore. Oh, yes. When you're 12 years old. Oh, yes. Um, this was a very weird story because it, like the guy, Ken Livingston's not anyone's spring chicken i mean he it's surely at some point he thought what does mom's last name mean before this why is this a news story this week even well ken apparently uh having just now just recently called hitler uh the world's greatest zionist uh is you know is is on a tear oh here and he said that he's on a roots journey he's he's feeling the love he's he's uh, uh anti-brexiting and here he is uh, claiming that he's had conversations with with some of his Jewish friends because some of his closest friends are Jews. Uh, they always the, are. They know? always are. Uh, but here's the thing, Ken. And they're rooting him on. He says, "There's, there's Google. Like, check yourself before you wreck yourself." <laughs> this is one of those people I have to say I just don't care about at all. Ken Livingston. Yeah, like I know his name and I know he's like some bad, but Ken. I'm out. I'm you done. know what that speaks to is just how unimportant the British Empire is. That the, is exactly right. Um, which is why I don't care if they leave Europe. Which is why they should leave Europe. I think they should leave Europe. And I make Britain great again. I I actually the whole sort of Europe turning into one big smoosh of Europe doesn't doesn't move me. I mean, imagine the anti-Brexit thing in like a marriage kind of be like, okay, so honey, um, I know I've let a lot of terrorists into the house. And I also know that I've really passed a lot of very strange rules that determine the shape of the cereal you're allowed to eat. But if you leave me, I'll never give you any money again. Like, that's a horrible abuse of relationship. It's, it's, a, it's a bad relationship. No, thank you. Brussels is abusing them all. So, Liel, Brussels. Brussels. I think, child rape capital of the world. I, I, we're going to get more mail from our Belgian yep. listeners. Hey, Belgium. Um, so I think Ken, Ken, we decided that Ken needs a Hebrew lesson. So here's, Liel, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you three phrases that are important British phrases. I mean, these are things you can't exist in English political life unless you can say this in multiple languages. And I want to make sure that he knows the right way to say them in Hebrew. Should Ken ever be, I don't know, ambassador to Tel Aviv or whatever. Are you ready? So the Hebrew that the Hebrew translations that I provide to these sentences better be very accurate and and very kind of a high level. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm yeah. ready. It should be sort of diplomatic Hebrew. <sighs> I'm you ready. I'm it's not street Hebrew. <clears throat> it's not shook Hebrew. It's totally right. Diplomatic Hebrew. Okay. Ready? Okay. okay. Knesset Hebrew. Can <laughs> remember this is going to be completely correct Hebrew <laughs> that you totally do not have to Google. You could trust us 100. percent All right. The first one is, I wholeheartedly support Britain's remaining in the European Union. Kushelaim imashelcha. And that that means. I wholeheartedly support. Uh, that is exactly what I mean. All right. The next question. <laughs> now that Downton Abbey is over, I wonder where I'll next be able to catch the divine Maggie Smith. Oh, my God. Uh, 
אחותך זונה. So falafel, the word, I just got the word falafel. That's actually the Hebrew for hound. Falafel, it's like hush puppy, falafel is Hebrew for little hounds. Thank you, thank you for that Hebrew lesson. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. The time has come to call our friend Ari Nagel. Now, just to, if you didn't hear last week's show, well, first of all, go listen to last week's show. What, what are you doing listening out of order? Everything that we do syllogistically builds on the previous week. Yeah. Last week, we talked about Ari Nagel, the community college math professor in New York City, blue-eyed Jewish dreamboat. The math debater. The math <laughs> Don't, oh, li- don't wow. lisp his name. No lisping. No, math. Who, I, I got it. Yeah. I, but see? Get see it? what That's, I did there? I see what you did there. I combined his passion I, I with his it. other passion. I got it. Yeah. Who has sired 22 sperm donor kids by 18 women, some of whom he passed his semen to in a target men's room. Now, the Times of Israel and others report that he is married and has three children. We didn't know that last week. His wife tells the press that she had no idea this was going on. He says that's absurd. They're fighting it out in the pages of the Times of Israel and the New York Post. <laughs> so I figured, well, I can't wait for this. I figured all. maybe we could just talk to Ari Nagel. We'll get him to sort this all out. Now, to be clear, if we were being journalistically proper about this, we would get his wife on the phone as well. So, but we're just having Ari on. We're not in, we're not endorsing Ari. But we are um, retweets and guests are not endorsements. Guests okay. do not equal endorsements. Julie, you ready? You ready to call Ari? Uh, Julie, our producer is so skeeved out by this. Yeah, Julie is entirely That's against having dirty. Ari on. <laughs> Good morning. Hi, is this Ari Nagel speaking? Hey, Ari, it's Mark Oppenheimer from the Unorthodox Podcast. How are you? Well, wonderful. Wonderful. So, first of all, is is all the, is all the coverage of you true? All the stuff we've been reading in the New York Post, twenty two kids, eighteen women, all true? No, no, not not a hundred percent of it has been uh, accurate. It's uh, twenty two kids. It's twenty two moms. Okay, okay, and um, and what about the follow up story that you are married and have three in wedlock children, and that your wife didn't know? Could you sort that all out for us? Yeah, that's not a hundred percent accurate either. But the thing is, is that um, you know she wanted to be private and she wanted to remain anonymous, and I tried to facilitate that, um, but the post uh, did not. And they were calling and texting her and ambushing her outside her apartment, taking pictures, and that's why she was so uh, livid. 
you know, obviously they implied that she was livid about finding out about the children, which of course she knew about. That's not something you can keep a secret. And uh, the kids did hundreds of play dates together. She even did play dates in her home. Wait, wait, wait. Your your children with her did play dates with the twenty two other kids. Yes, not one. Hundreds of play dates. Hundreds of play dates. So the Nagels are one big happy family. No, I wouldn't say that. You know, but. Um, you know, if I have uh, if I have the kids that we have together for the day, and I'd be going to birthday parties, they'd be tagging along. And you do you know, do so. play dates with all of your twenty two children or twenty five children? Uh, there's four children that I've never met. Okay, but but the other eighteen of those donor children, you're an involved dad. Uh, to different uh, varying degrees. So some I would see every day, some I would see once a month, some I would see a few times a year. So what was Father's Day like for you? <laughs> just like every day is Father's Day like for like, him. How much breakfast in bed was there? <laughs> yeah. I got a lot of cards. Um, Father's Day, of course, it was, that was the best. That's the best day ever. It's... I got taken out to lunch and uh, I went with um, four uh, moms plus two prospective moms, and we all went out for a show. We went to Radio City. We saw the Rockettes. And now, a, when you say prospective moms, he, so, so uh, there are a few logistical questions here. Would you ever say no? Would you ever meet a prospective mom and be like, I don't like your politics. You know, I don't like things about you. I, no. It's hard. It's very, very hard. You know, you hear their stories, and they're sad sometimes. Um, more importantly, when you tell them that you'll do the best to help them, you've never seen anyone so happy and so appreciative and so thankful. So you've, you've never said no? Well, you know, obviously now I'm getting a lot of requests and um, obviously I'll have to be somewhat more selective. Uh, Today I got emailed from a 47-year-old from Nigeria. You know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to say yes to her. Did she ask you to deposit $5,000 before you? Now, how did you get started in this racket? Uh, What was your your entry point? What was your gateway into the world of, of, uh, you know, of, of this form of altruism? The, uh, I have a, a child who's going to turn eight this summer and another one who's turning eight uh, in the fall. And those were really my first uh, two donations. I believe I was working with the single woman first, and she was um, just not meeting anyone on the Upper West Side. So you had this woman friend. She couldn't find anyone. And you said, hey, I could help out. That's how it started? It was more complicated than that. You know, she, she wanted the kid to be accepted in the Jewish community. We went to a rabbi, got married. We got, a week later, we got divorced, and we went through the whole process so the kid could be accepted. But you were already married. Well, we did a religious uh, marriage. So you had your civil marriage with Roxanne, right? And then you, did, you got a Jewish marriage with your, the first of your sperm donor babies and then a divorce right after she found out she was pregnant. I think it was after she was pregnant. We just did the married and divorced a week later. I'm confused. I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure on the timeline, but it was basically just a week in between. And then she was so pleased with the work you'd done that she then referred you around to her friends, and that's how it. No, comes. they she they, they, she didn't know this other couple was a lesbian couple in Chelsea. They. How they does everyone lesb- find you? You know, it it, um, it varied. You know, some of them were finding me on social media. But are you advertising? Are are you out no, there on Facebook? I, I never, like, hey guys, uh, I yeah. never I never advertised, but uh, I met the lesbian couple. I was. You know, I sold my motorcycle on Craigslist, and I found a housekeeper, and then that's when I came across their ad, and they just posted an ad looking for a donor. Huh. 
And we read in the New York Post article that with some of these women, with some of these lesbians, you would actually do it the old-fashioned way. You'd show up and have intercourse with them. Why would they choose that as opposed to the Target or Starbucks handoff? What's, what makes them choose you in person? Yeah, that's a, a personal decision. You know, some of them thought maybe it has a better chance. You know, a lot of people have this myth that it dies if it touches air, which I know now is not true. But I really always left it up to them. Sometimes they just felt like, you know, they wanted the child to be born not in a cup, you know, but, you know, in in an old-fashioned manner, you know, I suppose. But what's more bizarre is sometimes the lesbian couple would call me, you know, a year after the child was born and then ask me to be intimate just to cheat on their spouse. And that I never took advantage of. Um, and then sometimes, obviously, not even a lesbian couple. Sometimes a single woman would want to just hook up socially. And, and like you'd never do that. I never did that. I felt like that would be crossing a the line. Then I would, <laughs> it would be a donor anymore. Huh. There's another yeah, name well, for you at that point. You're no it, longer it, a donor. I, I, it, my life is complicated enough. Speaking of the complications of your life, I want to ask you some <laughs> technical questions. How did you come up with, with a handoff method in, in the case of the non-traditional intercourse? How, did, how does it work? Yeah, I think I need to come up with a new system. You know, I'm not sure. I'll well, be now you do. <laughs> yeah. I don't think Target wants you in anymore. They, they don't want your I business. Go, I'm always like, you know, you know, even at my friend's house, I went to watch Game Seven. I'm like, why don't I use the bathroom? You know, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't. Yeah. We don't need anyone pregnant in this house. So but how? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry, but this is something that I think at least some of our male listeners would be interested in. Like, you're, you're in a, a bathroom at a Target, you know. Uh, arousal, I would imagine, is an issue. This is not. What do you do? Tell us your secret. Do you have like focus? Do you meditate beforehand? Are you? Do you walk in there being like, "I'm going to do this thing"? Really? I mean, come on. No, we're I'm. All, I'm, I'm dead serious. Are we all guys? You know, really, you have an issue of where you can. Well, Ari, there are guys, and then there are guys. I think Leon <laughs> I mean, and I both you know, know we're we, talking uh, to someone who's a little you. bit more guy than we are. Yeah, yes. I think that's been established. Don't don't sell yourself short there. Uh, right, I'm professor. not sure. I'm the only one, okay? I just feel like maybe I'm doing it more for an altruistic purpose rather than just, a, you know, maybe a perverted one. But I'm sure that's Oh, the, re- the rest of us are all just, just onanists, just, just sort of <laughs> decadent self-pleasurers. Yes, you're, that's exactly what we're we doing are. for the altruism. That man does not spill his seed, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Oh, believe me, I would much prefer to do it in the privacy of my own home or in the privacy of their home. So are there no contracts, no forms? I mean, what's what's the, the logistical Side of this. Some of them asked me to sign something, and some of them didn't. If they asked me to sign something, I always would accommodate. So is the expectation that you may be involved in their kids' lives, if they want? Yeah. Yes. I try and, you know, uh, undercommit and overdeliver rather than the other way around. All right. Two more questions. First of all, how did the Post get this story? Did, did you tell them about you? You know, I was sort of duped. Story said, oh, we know each other from the Upper West Side. We met a whole bunch of times. I really had no recollection of that. Um, but she said, we're doing a father's day piece. Um, we're profiling a whole bunch of dads and you could be one of the dads and make a nice inspirational story. And I felt like, yeah, maybe that could help, you know, bring awareness to the different reproductive options that women have. But I thought it was going to be some kind of fluff piece buried in the article because they were profiling a whole bunch of dads and I was just going to be one of them. So she knew I was asking her so tell me about some of the other dads that you're profiling. And she was like, oh, different reporters are doing different dads, and then we're just going to put it all together. But yeah, she never told me, obviously, that she was going to focus so much on the methodology. And How did you she, you've out-dadded them the all. Of the paper. You know, it was Shavuot when it came out, which is that Jewish holiday 
So oh, I right. If the paper was going to come out on Sunday, my parents aren't going to read it. By Monday night, the story will go away. It's buried in the back of the post. Nobody will be the wiser. You know, this, you know, even online, you know, stuff that shows up in the metro section today is gone tomorrow. They put new articles there. Well, what do your parents say about this whole thing? Um, they are not supportive. You know, all well, my brothers and sisters are married and have traditional relationships, um, and they, they don't really understand it. I haven't spoken to them since the article uh, broke out. I think they're very disappointed and hurt and, I think, embarrassed. Um, but of course, I love them. They love me, and they, they you know, they're from Muncie, and maybe they don't appreciate. Um, they're from Muncie. Are they observant? Uh, yes, I grew up uh, Orthodox. Uh, so, final, most important question of the twenty-two, how many of them are being raised Jewish? Uh, some of the moms are Jewish. Sometimes one of the moms is Jewish, the other mom isn't. You know, but all their dads are Jewish, and a lot of times um, they have. Um, you know, what's called being raised Jewish. Maybe they'll light the candles on Hanukkah, you know, and things like that. Ari Nagel, you are our favorite Isaac Bashevis singer's story. Um, thank you well, for coming on. not over. You know, it's still evolving, so I'll come back. We'll check back every every 22 kids or so. <laughs> every 22 kids. Uh, happy belated Father's Day to you. Thanks for coming on Unorthodox. You bet. Thanks so okay. much. Bye-bye. He's washing dishes and baby clothes. He's so ambitious. Even so, but don't forget, folks, that what you get, folks, for making whoopee. Matthew Futterman is our guest Jew. He's a sports writer for the Wall Street Journal. His new book is Players, the story of sports and money and the visionaries who fought to create a revolution. He has also recently written about Zika at the upcoming Olympics and Russians and doping and all sorts of things. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So here's my first question. Are there any Russian athletes who are not on drugs? I don't know. I would bet there probably are, but there are probably some Russian athletes who are on drugs who don't know they're on drugs or think they may not be or don't know exactly what drugs they're on because there's a lot of don't sort of don't ask, don't tell. Um, for lack of a better phrase, I, it, from from what we find, you know, like where you as have, in don't ask what I'm injecting into your thigh, and I yeah, won't tell you what I inject into your thigh. Pill, you know, take these pills. This cream is really good. It'll help your muscles feel better. Um, you know, there's some of that. There's also, but there is also, yeah, a tremendous. I think a, a tremendous amount of. Um, skirting the system. So uh, I don't think it's an underestimation to say that the Russian anti-doping um, agency was essentially set up to beat the anti-doping system. So I'm seeing the look on Mark Oppenheimer's face right now, and the look on Mark Oppenheimer's face right now says, what's the point of all this? If it's so prevalent, you know, then, then, then aren't we really, you know, significantly thwarting entire branches? Should we just do away with a lot of this? Do you mean do away with the Russian with Russian athletes and have them not participate? That's one thing, but do away with things like just you know, that the Olympics seems shot so put. hopeless. Yeah, I mean, like we have these, we have a few events that's where everyone who ever wins seems to be a doper. Then we have these other events where it's like if you bribe an East German judge, then you can win a gold medal for twirling. I mean, shouldn't it just seems like so much of it is is bloated and distorted? beyond any sort of, you know, higher, faster, swifter cliche. Yeah, I mean, I think there are, there are, there are some events that are like that. Um, but, you know, you find yourself at the Olympics uh, and you find yourself watching, you know, the team archery finals. And, you know, this Italian guy who's 
40 pounds overweight has got to get a bullseye from 75 meters away, you know, to win the gold medal, and everything is on this one arrow. And, you know, this is the moment, this is the greatest moment of his life right there, and you get completely swept up in it immediately. There is a fair amount of purity is probably too strong a word, but there is a fair amount of just great competition that goes on there. And, you know, beyond that, I mean, at its base, the Olympics is essentially a peace movement. Um, and, you know, I know it's crass, commercial, and stuff like that, but if you put, you know, if you put on your uncynical hat for a moment, um, which you sort of have to do at times when you're covering the Olympics. Oh, we lost that hat a long yeah, time. Yeah, I know, I know, but I didn't. I still hang on to it sometimes. Um, so if you if you wear that a little bit, you know, there there is this idea at the base of the Olympics um, where if for 17 days people from all over the country, all over the world, excuse me, you know, with all different backgrounds and languages and you know, living under different kinds of governments, you know, can live in the same village together and eat in the same dining halls and compete in the same pools and tracks and things like that, you know, maybe, just maybe the world will end up being a little bit of a better place. You really love the Olympics. I do really love the Olympics. I have loved the Olympics since I was a small child. Um, I think it's completely fascinating. I think it's what it, you see because nothing really happens by accident. And you're going um, this year. You're on your way to Rio as we speak. I'm, yeah, walking out to the airport. <laughs> as we speak. I heard you know more about the Olympics than anyone. Is that correct? I don't think that's correct. There are lots of different people who know more about the Olympics. I do have a lot of useless Olympic information sitting in um, you know, sort of corners of my brain. You know what would cure you of your love of the Olympics is if you had only daughters and all they wanted to do was watch gymnastics. So that's funny because I do have only daughters and there are times when they only want to watch gymnastics. <laughs> Mainly they only want to watch the U.S. women's national soccer team. Oh, well, okay. That's good. What is the m- most overlooked sport? Like what should we be watching that just nobody thinks to watch? I, I like to stay away from any sport that's judged and that includes gymnastics and figure skating. I kind of... Uh, I'm so with you there. I kind of admire it a little. You know, I can get I get it, but I just don't really like judge sports. Yeah. I like sports that have, you know... There's an actual clocks. winner. Yeah. yeah, clocks and finish lines and, and things like that. Um, the, water polo is really cool in person, but it doesn't come off on television very well. You just can't see. Yeah, they're just uh, like splashing around. Yeah, they're just sort of splashing around. The ball kind of bounces around a little bit. Um, it's it, it that one's that, that's one if you're there and you're going. Um, it's it's pretty interesting. Uh, you know, I, I, I think when it comes to the Olympics, you know, the popular sports are the popular sports for a reason because they're great. I mean, swimming and track is because they're the interesting it's, it's, ones. It's pretty much the thing to see in gymnastics if you're into that. I, I, I want to get uh, away from the Olympics, just in general, but also in this conversation, and to, to ask you a question about your book, Players, uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, so if you, if you think about kind of the story of sports in the last, say, 30, 40 years, here's probably the story that everyone just off the street would tell you. Used to be really great, you know, Babe Ruth, these people played for the love of the game, and then big money corrupted everything, and then now it's all just a bunch of, you know, just uh, fast money ball, kind of calculating, careful, cautious, super commercialized, and it sucked and it's no longer fun. 
What do you think of that? Yeah, I pretty much hate that guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like that—that's what I, I honestly, I, 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 part of the whole reason I uh, wrote this book was because it, it's just completely not true. I mean, money did not ruin sports. Money made sports what they are today. Uh, and they, and I spend the first third of the book writing about this guy Mark McCormick, who founded a company that later became known as IMG. And, you know, he goes down as sort of the Henry Ford of the sports world because he's the first one to have this idea that if we get more money into sports and we get more money to the players, you know, they'll they'll have more time to practice and train and they'll be better at what they do. And if they do that, then more people will want to watch, more people will want to buy tickets, and that'll put more money into the system and it'll eventually filter down to the players. Uh, and when the players have even more money, their jobs will get better. People, more people will want those jobs because being a professional athlete was kind of a crappy job 50 years ago. Uh, it didn't pay very much. Uh, hours are bad. You probably had to have a second job in the off season, which most of them did. And, you know, that, that all had to change because it, once, you, once their jobs became better, more people would want them. The competition would get better. Yeah. Poor Bill Bradley had to become a senator <laughs> just to make yeah. ends meet. Yeah, the idea is that, like, you know, what we see when we turn on the television is such a better quality product than it was, you know, 25, 40, 50 years ago um, that, you know, this is what we love right now. It's pretty hard to watch a football game from 30 years ago. You know, it's slow, it's clunky, the athletes aren't all, all that great. It's, it's like water polo. Yeah, exactly. Sort of <laughs> like water polo. So one last question for you. What is your favorite sport to watch? My favorite sport to watch? Well, I will say, and we'll go back to the Olympics for a second here, there is nothing quite like the men's 100 meters. I know it only lasts about nine and a half seconds, uh, but you're sitting in a stadium and there's 80,000 people, and in the moment before the gun goes off, it is as silent as the ballet. And there is something so completely elemental about it. Uh, there's no real equipment that's involved. There's no spotlights. There's nothing. There's just eight guys lined up. They're going to try and go 100 meters as fast as anyone has ever run 100 meters before. And if there's a moment when I'm, when I'm think like, yeah, this is why I do this, it's when I'm watching that event. Matthew Futterman, we, we thank you so much for coming on our show. This is amazing. I hope you'll report back to us uh, after you have a Zika-free Olympics. Definitely. Um, your book, which is soon to be out in paperback after it sells a million copies in hardcover, is Players, the Story of Sports and Money and the Visionaries Who Fought to Create a Revolution. And, uh, you know, have fun down there. I will do my best. All right. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. 
And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Our guest Gentile this week is editor and publisher, excuse me, retired editor and publisher. Yes, I'm now a writer. Anne Patty, <laughs> uh, who in her new book, Living with a Dead Language, My Romance with Latin, talks about leaving the rat race of New York City for upstate New York, where she finds love and studies Latin. Is that a fair <laughs> summation? Love and Latin. Latin. Love yes, and Latin. Yes, love and Latin. Yeah. And I found, actually, I found... Which did I? F- I found the love just before I found the Latin. If your book is to be believed, love wasn't quite enough for me. <laughs> well, so so the basic plot of the book, if I may, if I may, is uh, you leave publishing. You're 58 years old. You're a single mom. Is you were an empty nester? Yes. Well, I'd been an empty nester You'd, for quite a while. For quite a while. Yeah. So, and you'd said enough of this, and I'm ret- I'm taking off from my place. In- well, no, that's not really what happened. All right, what happened? I had a, a two day a week job. I had the perfect job, and then Harcourt got swallowed up by Houghton Mifflin, and I didn't get uh, fired in the first round of firings where they let go of a third of the Harcourt employees. But once we moved in the Houghton Mifflin building, suddenly the a uh, group that bought us out had zero money. We weren't allowed to buy. But anyway, long story short, 40 of us got fired in one day. And you were one of them. I was one of them. Could, who, who's, who's at fault here? Could we name somebody? Who would you like to blame? Uh, Culture. It, it was an Irish uh, consortium of money. So I, I don't <laughs> That's even— That's a phrase I've never heard before. <laughs> I know. I don't even know who we can blame. It was the Irish. So, so I blame here. everybody. Okay. But it was an Irish goodbye. <laughs> it was an Irish goodbye. It was the Irish yes. farewell. Yes. They lay you it down on a table Irish at a goodbye. bar. And, yeah. So I just decided enough of this. And I had already kind of moved to the country, but I was com- commuting. But I still had a relationship to New York. So I was here two or three days a week. So it was rather shocking to find myself in the middle of 11, literally in the middle of 11 acres, surrounded by, you know, chipmunks, birds, and trees. And I would be, where are the people? So was it quiet or was there like, like... It is definitely quiet. Well, there's bird there's, songs. There's sounds of nature. There but are I, sounds of those nature. Those are scary sounds. But there's no car sounds. There's no... You don't even hear your neighbor's lawnmower. And you discovered you were of the Frank O'Hara school, which is, you, you know, if you weren't within shouting distance of a subway, you got depressed. Well, no, it wasn't... I, it wasn't so much that I wasn't in... It was just that I didn't know what to do with myself. I had been so busy my whole life. And suddenly I wasn't busy. So I did some freelance work, but I worked with 
really good writers. You know, I just I published Life of Pi, I published uh, Stephen Milhouse, or you know, I, I worked with really good writers. Did you see that Barack Obama read Life of Pi to one of his daughters? That was in the news well, yesterday. Well, one thing that makes me very famous is that we initially, when I ran Poseidon Press, owned Barack Obama's book before he was Barack Obama. Uh-huh. Early in your book, you talk about meeting George, who is still. Your, your liaison heir, oui. yes, your paramour. Have you yes. married him? Have you made an honest man of him? I'm Are as you... married as I can possibly be without being married. Okay, okay. So, and one <laughs> of the things you say about him is that on his profile, he made himself sound literate, but in fact, you discovered he's not a reader. No. And honestly, um, how does that work? I mean, I always thought the one qualification, the one non-negotiable was I had to marry someone who was a reader. Um. What I realized being with him is I get everything from him I get from no one else. I can discuss books with a lot of people I know. But we live together very well, and the kind of re- – I'm having the happiest relationship of my life. We don't discuss books. Our relationship is not intellectual. It is emotional. It is living. And it does surprise me sometimes that it works, but it works. And I have those discussions with other people. So there's not that time when you're finishing a great book in bed and you want to turn to him and say, you must read this. But then you feel like that would be a weird thing because he wouldn't read it. Yeah, he wouldn't. He reads bird books and mountain climbing books and he and he's sand a, books. He's a real goy. He's a real goy. <laughs> he's a real goy. <laughs> Nothing he's honorary a, Jew about him. No. There's, he, he has no. Although he was married to a Jewish woman for and raised three kids who I guess they're Jewish because their mother is, right? That's very true. Sure as heck are. So how t- – t- tell, tell, tell us about this affair, the affair with the language. Well, I decided I needed a reason to get out of the house. And I kept thinking, what have you missed in life? And I kept coming up with what I had done because I was one of those lucky people that had a career that I would have done anyway. And Latin kept coming up that I'd never learned Latin. And being that I am a card-carrying member of the grammar police and annoy my friends by correcting their usage all the time, I thought I should really go learn Latin. So I contacted It was not easy to find. Only the private schools up there gave it, both Bard and Vassar. And I ended up at Vassar. And my beginning class was four hours a week. I'm sorry, four days a week for an hour at nine o'clock every morning. I got up and did it, and I fell in love with it. And I fell in love with being in the classroom, and I fell in love with the kids. And so I'm now in year six. Who are the kids, by the way? Who are the kids at? Why can't they get to class before like five minutes before? Yeah, (laughs) the kids. Very specific type of kid. You mean it takes Latin? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you'd be at nine su- in the morning. You'd be surprised. I I I mentioned um, I can't remember. I changed his name. The the hardy the heartbreaker with the soul patch. He was not your typical Latinist. It, I wouldn't say if you if you looked at the kids in the Latin class, they would look any geekier or less sophisticated or less with it than the kids in any other language class. There's a certain kind of person who really loves Latin. It's not everybody, but the people who love it really love it, and they come from all walks of life. And they don't have to take the class on Fridays, right? All the other all the other right. languages met five days a week. I think right. they stayed up all night. They just powered through till their 9 a.m. class. That's yeah, who it I was. found that. I was really <laughs> shocked when I interviewed them, and, and at least half the people I interviewed said, well, it's the only language class that doesn't meet on Fridays. So I was like, whoa. But I... Love the depiction of you learning Latin because I took Latin in high school and that was, you took, it was, we had Spanish, French, and Latin and the smart kids took Latin. And all that everyone ever said to us was Latin is going to help you on the SATs. And I know your mother said Latin helps her with crosswords. Is any of this true? 
Yes. Okay. Because so my mom was right. Sixty, depending upon which statistic you believe, somewhere between sixty and sixty-eight percent of our vocabulary has a Latin root. Like I just noticed today, I don't know if this stuff obsesses me. That presumptive, sumptive, that pre is is, is before. Sumptive comes from sumo, which means to take up. So it means presumptive literally means before she has taken it up. So there's a word. Everywhere you look, you will find a Latin word. You can get yourself. I can go really crazy because you can almost not even read because oh, there's another one. I better look that up. But also Latin trains your mind to think in a way that is not normal for us. You kind of have to think backwards because to make sense of what part of speech anything is playing, you have to look at the declension, which is the end of the word, not the beginning of the word. So it tr- it's. I think it's almost like the way math trains your mind to think in a different way. I believe Latin does too. So do you now feel that that you were missing out on something all of your life without Latin? I mean, was, would your earlier life have been enriched had you taken Latin, or were you the, presumably there were other things you did with the time? So yeah, to I, have done Latin would have meant not doing something else. Well, and, I did French. Um, what I think would have changed, and what happened when I started writing the book is my mom started coming in. This is her Latin medal. I wear it. I did not have a close relationship with my mother, and she died very young. And what I missed was a re- I would have had a different relationship with my mother. We would have really had something in common that we could have loved together. So I now have the relationship by myself with her. So it brought her back to me. Do you feel a sense of profound sadness? Um, maybe it's just me, but there is a sense of loss that you feel when you learn this language, I think, which is very acutely aware of how how alone you are in this pursuit. This is not a popular pursuit. And this has been a, a much more common, you know, building block of shared cultural yes. inheritance up until not that, you know. No, probably the early 20th right. century. What, what happened to us? Uh, we defunded education. We got greedier and greedier and defunded education. It used to be that you had to know Latin and or Greek to be an educated person. I think uh, the 60s having a go with relevance was harmful, but I blame most of it on defunding. My local local high school where I live used to teach Latin, and that was the first thing to go in 2008. But I would like to say that it isn't all that lonely because as as you'll read in parts of the book where I get together with these other Latinists, there's this movement now called the Living Latinists. And it's growing every year. And you're going to Latin camp. Yeah. Tell us about that. Oh, my God. I went to one in February what was just a weekend hosted by an organization called Salwi. So in the Latin weekend, we all were in a plantation house in West Virginia. There were 35 of us. I was the only one there who wasn't a Latin teacher, although I kind of am a Latin teacher now. Um, and we spoke only Latin. And some of the people, you wouldn't believe how good they were. They were playing Scrabble in Latin. They were getting drunk in Latin. They were flirting in Latin. And I really enjoyed like wet, that. hot Latin American summer. Yeah. Yeah. And there were some hotties there. And I was in the dumb group. Um, but well, I like the fun group. Yeah. Well, no, it was just that it was just we didn't have to. They didn't expect us as much of us. So I've decided to go for a week, uh, convic- Conventiculum Bostiones in July, which is run by UMass Boston, and we stay in Salem. And this is for an entire week where you wow. speak 
you take, only. You take the pledge. Latin. You take, you the, take pledge. the pledge. Do you, um, will you start thinking in Latin? I think that's highly unlikely. <laughs> and before we go, you, is your Latin good enough that you could say something to us in Latin so we could have it uh, ringing I can in our ears? Say, uh, I know how to say, I thank you very much for coming to my reading. Can I say yeah, that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Say yeah. that. Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Agomutos gratias, vobis, sequendum, sequendo, lectione meum. The book is Living with a Dead Language, My Romance with Latin. And thank you for coming on Unorthodox. Libentor, thank which you. means you're welcome. Thank you. Ah, thank Libentor. Mazel Tovs of the Week. Ooh, Stephanie, I got one. Stephanie Butnick. Mazel tov to Mila Kunis, um, who was pregnant with her second child with Ashton Kutcher. Her second That's Jewish, big Jewish news. Her second Jewish child. Did, Ash, did Ashton ever convert? He never no, did. No, but I think he wears that Kabbalah string, so he's fine. He's Asha. So he's, <laughs> he's basically Asha, Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my Mazel Tov is to my senator, Chris Murphy, leader of filibuster of the week for gun control, uh, representing on the Senate floor. We're very, we're very proud of you. This is where my wife would put out put out this is where my wife would point out right that, here? that he would <laughs> this is where my wife would point out that chris murphy was two years ahead of her at williams college and so you know who my mazel tov who's has your to mazel tov of the week well to the national rifle association oh my God. Oh, for yet another successful day if we believed you meant that we wouldn't have a working relationship you can't even say it with a straight face anymore liel agent provocateur libowitz for real though who's your mazel tov um yeah, I was going to go with the Republican Party <laughs> for completing yet another <laughs> spectacular stage uh, in in the complete collapse uh, of of civilization. My muscle thought was to America. Well, we're having the best summer ever. <laughs> America, at least we're not Brazil right now. <laughs> How about that? America, if we had something to exit from, we would by now. <laughs> If you have thoughts, comments, praise, questions, anything at all for the world-renowned Jewish panel of experts, send them to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. As you know, we might read your letters on the air in gently edited form. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. It's edited by Julie Subrin and produced by Sarah Ivry and Alyssa Goldstein. Rabbinic supervision is by our super listener, Janet Mishner. Kosher slaughtering by Lindy Jones and Stacey Berman. Thanks for your help. Follow Tablet on Facebook or on Twitter. We're at Tablet Mag. Our music is by Golem. Have a wonderful week. Shalom, friends. Shalom.